Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. And welcome back. Um, I am your host, Nick Carora, um, for the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. And here is another interview with a scientist here at Queen's. Um, today we have in front of us Dr. Nathan Degg. Um, hi, Nathan. How are you doing? Magical. And how are you on this? Cold? I don't know. Yesterday was super cold and I haven't stepped outside today because, you know, pandemic uh, right. day. <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, yeah, it was a cold day. First of all, to our listeners and also to Nathan, we are recording this after the new he- new year has occurred. So happy new year, um, Nathan. Um, happy I new hope, year. Yeah, I hope your holidays were relaxing and peaceful and protected. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. Very, very protected. Yeah. Uh, same thing for our listeners. We hope you're keeping stay safe and healthy. Um, yeah, but let's get started here. Let me give you a little bit of an int- introduction about who Nathan is. Um, so Nathan currently is here at Queen's University. Um, he is a software developer for the Canadian Institute for Radio Astronomy. Now that involves, that is a very interesting part of his job because he's working on radio telescopes that are sort of forthcoming in the near future. And those are some exciting things that we'll get to talk to Nathan about um, in the later half of this podcast. Uh, Nathan uh, comes to us from Nova Scotia, um, so the far east of Canada. Yes. Um, well, technically, weirdly, I do come from Nova Scotia. That's where I consider home. But technically, I, well, not technically, I'm act- I was actually born in Kingston, Oh, uh, and this is the third time of living in Kingston. We moved a lot around a lot of, uh, when I was younger, but I got to Nova Scotia in around grade four, and then was there until grad school. Okay, yeah, there we go. Well, then you are classified as a Kingstonian for yes. sure. Um, for his research, Nathan focuses on numerical simulations of galaxies, specifically how isolated and couples of galaxies evolve in the universe over time. Now, this is something interesting as well, and we'll talk about this um, shortly. Um, Nathan got his bachelor's from St. Mary's University in astrophysics. Then he came here to Kingston to his birthplace, if I can say that, uh, to do his master's and PhD in simulations of galaxies. For a little while, Nathan left Canada and went to University of Cape Town for a research position there. Um, Now, I will ask people to Google the Table Mountain, which is one of the... Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's a wonder one of, of the world, gorgeous, I think. Uh, things that you can see in nature, for sure, in Cape Town, South Africa. Yeah. So, Nathan, did you ever make it to the top of uh, Table Mountain? Yes. Yes, I did. That was a... So, it was up a couple times. The In Cape Town, there are many... Hi, it's There are a lot of hiking trails. There's right. the... The easiest mountain to go up is Lion's Head. It's v- very common. It's about an hour or so up and down. But yeah. I, I've seen people run it. 
going up Table Mountain is a bit more effort. There's a nice way, but one day I went with a few other people and we did a more scenic route. And yeah. we did not appreciate that once you got up there, we were going to come down via a cable car. And that uh, game from where we made it up the mountain to the cable car was about triple the time it took just to get to the top. <laughs> wow. Sort of thing. It, it was a yeah. full day uh, experience. It was a lot of fun and gorgeous up there, but tiring. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, um, I'm a fan of the sport cricket and... In Cape Town, there is the Newlands Cricket Stadium that overlooks yep. the Table Mountain. and uh, it's, a, it's a gorgeous stadium. I hope was there to watch some cricket. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Table Mountain is one of the most amazing sort of natural things that I wish to visit um, sometime yeah. in the future, for sure. Um, but uh, along uh, with that... For anyone listening, if you ever get a chance, it's a gorgeous place to visit. It's yeah. a place that should, operative word here is should, be a paradise. I, I completely agree. But along with that, Nathan, you're also a baker. Um, and Nathan and I are just working two offices down over here at Queen's University, when, of course, I might add, the pandemic is not raging at its fullest. Um, um, and I have enjoyed some of Nathan's baking as well. So, Nathan, did you do anything interesting over the holidays? Well, not huge. So... I, when you're, you overestimate my baking in the sense that I brought in uh, an apple crumble. I have an apple crumble recipe that I make, which I did make over the holidays. Yeah. And the only problem is, is that prior to Christmas, I only have one giant baking dish, which uh, when it, it's one of those that it just fills the oven, this baking dish. Right. Uh, so it's just to give a scale on it. Um and there's, it is very difficult to eat all the apple crumble that you can make and fill that dish with. And you can't really do a half bit. So I uh, brought in a giant amount of apple crumble to the office that Nick uh, was able to enjoy some of. Which, which I do feel lucky about. I do feel happy that you only have one that one baking dish, which can accommodate um, crumbles more than just for one person. So yeah, I agree. All right, so let's get to the meat of this episode. Um, for our listeners over here, the, the episode is going to be structured in sort of the familiar way, but in the first part, um, after we get to know a little bit, Nathan, a little bit more, we'll sort of talk about some of the science that Nathan has done through simulations of galaxies. Um, and then we, uh, in the second part, or rather the third segment, we'll then move on to um, Nathan's current role as a software developer in Canadian Institute for Radio Astronomy and what implications that has for astronomy in general for us um, here in Canada as scientists as well. But let's start with something sort of very basic, Nathan. Um, here's a set of three questions that I ask all my interviewees. What got you interested in physics? Then what got you interested from physics specifically into astronomy? And then finally, what made you fall in love with galaxy? Okay, so the, the order is actually probably astronomy first. It, it's a funny thing. Now, I don't know how many listeners went through this as kids, but the very first love of as a kid is dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are awesome and amazing, and I want to be a paleontologist. Right. Uh, that, that, that was what I wanted to be until, you know, grade one-ish sort of thing. And I don't know what happened, but I remember uh, 
one day I woke up and I went, you know what? Paleontologist is great. Space is great. I want to be a space colonization scientist. Oh, wow. Okay. That's what I had said as a kid. Um, And that, and and it was just a switch right over to uh, 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 that space from there. Uh, and, And I think part of that was as a kid, I was like, well, going to space, that's the future. Dinosaurs are amazing, but they're kind of dead, except for uh, emus uh, and birds today. But anyway, that's a digression. Uh, From there, you know, there is always an interest in space and astronomy and this sort of thing. Uh, Of course, you go through school, you do your science. And so I I generally focused on science courses. I liked them more. um, And of them... I liked physics more than biology and chemistry, Uh, mainly, again, during high school. I don't know how many of the listeners experienced this. I found it that in biology and chemistry, I was memorizing things and rules and then Mm. finding that there's just as many exceptions to the rules as there were rules. Right. Yeah. uh, Sort of thing. And, And physics, at least as it was taught in high school, you didn't get those exceptions. Until you get to university and learn that all this stuff that you learned is wrong, but it's also <laughs> right. Uh, there are it, it is wrong in general what you learn in high school, but it is right in most applications. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's uh, and I that's certainly true in chemistry and biology, but I didn't realize that until I was already deep into astronomy. Right. Um, and then, like I said, I was always interested in space, so went to St. Mary's, which has an astronomy program, and so a lot of people, I know when you go to university who go into astronomy, you'll graduate with a degree in physics, maybe with a specialization in astronomy of some sort. Uh, at St. Mary's, you actually can get your degree in astronomy and astrophysics, which is what I did. Uh, and... Like I said, just going on from there is, uh, after the first year, that's where you made your choice. And I'm like, yep, nope, astronomy is what I want to do. Then I went to Queens and did graduate school and all that wonderful things. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, Okay, so let's start with some of your research over here um, and what you have been, you are a specialist of in the world. Um, You study specifically isolated galaxies and galaxy pairs. Um, Let's start with isolated galaxies, Nathan. Why are we interested in isolated galaxies? So I I think it it sort of goes a little bit about context. So uh, again, I'm going to pretend that everybody's listening knows what a galaxy is. You have seen the beautiful, hopefully I've seen beautiful pictures from Hubble. Showing these wonderful spiral things. Of course, they're much more complicated than that. That There are spirals. There are ellipticals, which are just giant balls of stars, maybe some gas and dark matter and all this sort of thing. Galaxies, um, unlike stars, are crowded in the universe. So uh, what I mean by that is that the chances of two stars hitting each other two random stars that didn't form in a binary pair because yeah. of course stars can form in binaries but yeah ignoring that two different stars from different stellar systems will the probability of them running into each other and hitting each other and colliding 
it, it's just super rare. Yeah, it's almost Galax- impossible. Galaxies typically form together and they fall into each other and they're running into each other all the time. So isolated galaxies, the the definition of isolation is a very nebulous definition uh, (laughs) sort of thing. And I say that it's nebulous because when you have a galaxy, there are all sorts of things that are around. You have uh, globular clusters, so these are tightly bound clusters of stars that almost every galaxy has. There are often dwarf galaxies, so small mini things that are, are orbiting it. So the Milky Way has, I can never remember, 30, 40, 50 things in the system. But they'll often also form in groups where there's also large galaxies. So with the Milky Way, we're in a group with Andromeda, yeah. uh, which is easier to see in the southern hemisphere and then they're often in clusters uh so that's even larger than groups um so an isolated galaxy wouldn't have a large pair so it wouldn't be quite like our galaxy because we do have andromeda as a friend uh who will eat us or we're going to eat andromeda it's not clear depending (laughs) on your mass scales uh whether andromeda is twice the size or the same size as the milky way but yeah, they're going to merge together. And for uh, milk dromeda, by the way, yes. I wanted to. I'm sorry, Nathan, to jump in over here, but I always like to point out when we talk about the future collision of Andromeda about the final name of Andromeda and the Milky Way system, which is milk dromeda, sort of an evidence of how bad astronomers are at naming things. Oh, th- they're the worst, just the worst. <laughs> but sorry, continue. Uh, yeah. So when I so. When you want to study a galaxy and you want to figure out what's going on, um, a lot of galaxies, they're in these interacting systems or soon to be interacting or has interacted with something. And that those interactions do all sorts of things to a galaxy. They can distort it. They can rip stars out of it. They can stick together. They can... St- uh, set star formation going. They can remove gas from the system. Um, if they're inside a cluster, the cluster environment, because there's gas inside a cluster, that's less dense than the gas inside the galaxy. But as it plows through it, there's still this gaseous collision, which removes gas from the galaxy. And it's a complicated, there's a lot of complicated effects once you start running into things. Yeah. An isolated galaxy, uh, again, for various definitions of the word isolated, uh, doesn't have those effects. And so you can isolate a little bit more of what you're trying to study. I'm generally interested in dark matter. What's the dark matter doing to the galaxy? How is it distributed? And so if you've just had a collision, the dark matter is going to be disturbed in mm. some strange and wonderful way. If it's nice and isolated and there hasn't been a collision in a while, then you can really see what is the dark matter doing? How is it pulling things around? You can look at what happened after the star burst. Where did the gas go? Did it fall back onto the galaxy? Did it get blasted out into the uh, cluster? Well, cluster, the void of space, if it's an isolated sort of thing. Right. Um, and so when you're doing that sort of thing, that's where that's what isolated galaxies are useful for, is giving you that baseline 
And then when you have that baseline, then you can go back to those interactions and see what the effect of those are on isolated galaxies. What are the extra things that it's doing yeah. that are unique to the mergers, unique to interactions that aren't yeah. from just evolving by itself? Right. So so on to, to the core, Nathan, you're trying to answer the whole question about nature versus nurture, right? Where yeah. nature is something that happens almost inside you as a galaxy and nurture is something that happens by your peers or your the the things surrounding you and yeah. so what you're trying to say is how much of the galaxies that we look at today how much of that has been caused because of just nature itself um, yeah. before we go in and see the sum of nature plus nurture yeah and so yeah. like as one particular aspect that i'm often interested in yeah is a bar formation because I like bars. They're fun places in pre-pandemic times. <laughs> uh, but in the context of a galaxy, for again, if you look at these pictures of spiral galaxies, you again, you usually see the it's a spiral galaxy, so there's spiral arms. But sometimes you'll see the sort of rectangular, rectangular-ish elongation uh, in, in the picture yeah. With, uh, yeah. of the stars. And that's called a galactic bar. The Milky Way, we think, had, we're yeah. very, very confident that there is a bar in the Milky Way. Um, this bar has a number of effects, and the question is, is how do you form a bar? And there, it's an interesting problem, because you can form a bar in multiple ways. Yeah. Um, a bar can form by itself in the gravity of the galaxy. Yeah. Uh, but you can also have a galaxy that wouldn't necessarily form a bar and then have an interaction with a satellite that forms a bar sort yeah, of thing. So, so it becomes a really interesting problem. As you said, this nature versus nurture. Uh, sometimes in astronomy, we'll use the terms uh, secular versus environmental. Yeah. I really Where don't know why we use those nature. terms, but yeah. <laughs> secular is the galaxy itself. Yeah. So and nature. environment is any sort of interaction, anything that's going on around it. Yeah, agreed. Uh, um, okay, so I think that then from isolated galaxies, we can just almost naturally move to what your second expertise is, which is pairs of galaxies. And as you, you pointed out, um, galaxies are crowded. There are just so many of those in, um, in the universe. Why are we specifically interested in pairs of them? Well, again... Pair, the reason why I deal with pairs is sort of it, it, it's why you deal with isolated as well, yeah. which is that it's simpler than uh, full bore clusters. Right. So again, if you think about the level of complexity, galaxies are complex, but I'm going to pretend that they're simple for this analogy. If you think galaxies are simple, galaxy pairs are the next level up in complexity. Hmm, they, right. There, you've removed your effects to one other thing or right. a couple things, depe depending on your scales uh, yeah. of this interacting pair. Then there's a further level of complexity once you start talking about groups, because again, uh, we have Andromeda in the local group, which Nick, I know you study a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we you can't forget that we also have M33. Right. Uh, it yeah. is part of it. And we have the Magellanic Clouds, uh, which are important for the Milky Way. Yeah. 
the next level up is clusters of galaxies. So there's things like the Virgo cluster, which has thousands of galaxies, I think is the number. I can never remember that. Yeah, it's about like two and a half thousand or something like that. Yeah, two and a half thousand galaxies all packed together, interacting with each other. But beyond just the interactions with it, there's... Uh, inside the cluster, there's cluster gas, and that has its own effect right. uh, as well. That's not just from a, two things interacting. So pairs give you that step up in complexity where you can really see what happens in a particular interaction, and you can isolate that from what would happen when you have multiple interactions sort of thing. Yeah. Um, if you were... go uh, An analogy... A terrible analogy that I am making up on the spot is uh, if you're studying a galaxy by itself, that's dancing by yourself. Wonderful. Hmm. If you're studying a pair, now you're talking about maybe two people dancing together, doing a waltz or whatever. Yeah. Uh, And a cluster, now you're in a mosh pit sort of thing. It's a lot more complicated inside a mosh pit than in... And it's not to say that you can't try doing a waltz inside a mosh pit. (laughs) But the two of you are going to get bumped around a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for sure. In there. Uh, it's a terrible analogy, but it's a fun one. Yeah. Okay. So on that note, I think um, this brings us to the close of the first segment. Uh, when we come back, um, we'll dive deeper into Nathan's research and sort of talk about some of the research that he's done about our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, we'll be right back. Hello, Connor here. I'm just stopping by to let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube by searching for Queen's Observatory and looking for our logo. There will also be links to all of our online channels in the podcast description. We're always happy to talk about the universe, and if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. That's all from me. Time to learn more about our amazing universe. And welcome back. Um, we have with us um, Dr. Nathan Deck here today, um, and we are talking about individual galaxies and uh, how individual galaxies and pairs of them evolve. So up until now, Nathan, we have been um, sort of focusing on galaxies in general, but your expertise is sort of to apply those isolated things that you would learn from isolated galaxies and pairs of galaxies to the evolution or to the sort of changing nature of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. So let's start with something simple here, and then we'll start to get into your research about the Milky Way as well. Um, You pointed out earlier on that um, a galaxy has bars. Um, So by that, and spiral arms, of course, because we're talking about spiral galaxies. So what are the different components of a Milky of the Milky Way galaxy or in general spiral galaxies? Okay, well, that's a, a good question. And again, it's one of those that you get to go all through. There's different layers that you can go through on your classification. Right. So uh, when you think about a spiral galaxy, so have that picture in your mind of that beautiful spiral thing, uh, Generally, we'll talk about, uh, in the most general sense, we'll talk about three different components, uh, and these are sort of in terms of mass. Yeah. Uh, but so now you've got this picture in your head, 
in the center of your spiral galaxy, you'll often see a very bright area of stars sort of thing. That's yeah. the bulge. Um, then you have where you have your spiral arms, the bar, all that fun stuff. You'll generally call that the disk of the galaxy. And then surrounding it and all the way through it is the dark matter halo. Right. Um, and so if you want to sort of put a little bit of a scale on this, the way I often picture it, which may not be precise... Is that if you take your picture of the light stuff, so the bulge and the disc, now shrink it down to the size of a quarter and put a tennis ball around it. The tennis ball is that dark matter halo yeah. sort of thing. So the point there is that the dark matter halo, it's much, much bigger. Yeah. That being said, so those are your general three components, but then you can start getting a little bit more specific. So in our Milky Way... Uh, we also have a bar. We have spiral arms, so you can talk about those as specific components. You can talk about the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy, uh, yeah. which is is important and fascinating because, again, millions of stars worth of mass crammed into a tiny, tiny, tiny space. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you have that supermassive black hole around that. There's a nuclear star cluster sort of thing, a nuclear region that's separate from the bulge in some strange and magical way. Uh, within the uh, disk uh, of the Milky Way, we'll often talk about the thin disk and the thick disk. The difference between them is one is thicker than the other. Uh, right. But uh, but the thick disk is also stars that are older, and there's maybe a connection to how the Milky Way evolved. Mm. And there are some researchers who will actually say, no, there's not a thin disk and a thick disk. There's an evolving thickness with the age of the stars. Right. Yeah. Um, so again, you can get more and more complicated on your different components of the Milky Way. Yeah. Uh, and I'll say it's not to say other galaxies we often won't get as complicated about. Not that they don't have those complications, but it's that we're in the Milky Way and we can study things a lot more closely than we could in another galaxy. So we're yeah, able absolutely. to do that separation. Yeah. It's, it's our better. own house. It's almost like going to someone else's house and being able to pick out sort of the smudge on the wall kind of yeah. thing. Um, and remembering where it is at all times. Whereas with the Milky Way, we, we do know where we are and we can study it because it's a lot closer. It's right up in our face kind of thing. Yeah, well, which is very true. But there's actually some. So I love that analogy. Yeah. Except with the Milky Way, there's a little bit where it gets reversed a little bit. And this goes to the idea that if you've ever seen a pi picture of the Milky Way that looks like a spiral galaxy, that's this top-down picture. Yeah. That picture, it's a lie. It, yeah. it, it, it's an approximation. It's what we think it looks like, but we're stuck in the middle of it. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Some of the detailed Milky Way stuff we can do that we can't do around other galaxies. Mm -hmm. But because we're stuck in the middle of it... Yeah. It's also, there's some parts of it that are harder to see that are easier to measure in other galaxies. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's to 
to just continue that house analogy, it's like trying to take a picture of your house without leaving the house. Yeah. How do you do that? How, how do you um, take the picture of the outside of your house when you're without, stuck in the living room? Exactly, kind of thing. Well, you could have a drone, but... Um, do you have we, a million years to send it, your drone out right now? Exactly, <laughs> kind of thing, yeah. So that's why it's much harder, and that's why we there are some places where we know better about other galaxies, but we cannot know... Uh, those details about our galaxy because just because of the fact that we're stuck in them. Um, yeah. So Nathan, let's just continue over here. And you pointed out um, your your expertise is in in the dark matter halo of the Milky Way, which, by the way, just as a context, is almost a hundred times bigger than than the stellar distribution in the Milky Way is. So it's 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 like having a tiny, as you pointed out, a quarter inside a tennis ball kind of thing, but to some extent even smaller. Um, almost think of a dime in Canadian yeah. terms. Um, so, what are some of the different things that we can see in the dark matter halo of the Milky Way? Are there stars out there? And if they are out there, how do they live there? In what structures? Okay, so that's an interesting question. So there are. There's an interesting set of things that we see in the Milky Way, and we've started to see around other galaxies called stellar streams. Yeah. Now, what stellar streams are is uh, it's a streak of stars. So we talked a little bit earlier about how uh, a galaxy is surrounded by things like globular clusters and dwarf galaxies, which are smaller things. Um, as those things orbit around a galaxy... Uh, tidal forces, so the exact same force that creates the tides on Earth, and what those are is just uh, the different levels of gravity as a function of radius. Tides are complicated and not f as much fun. But anyway, the point is this is the same idea of the of a tide, which is that the side closest to something big gets a stronger gravitational pull than the side that's furthest away. Yeah. Now, on Earth, Earth, water is very tightly bound to the planet. In a galaxy, stars are not nearly as tightly bound, and these tidal forces can pull the stars off the mm. dwarf galaxy or the globular cluster. And it's maybe worth having an idea of the scale here. When I'm talking about a dwarf galaxy or a globular cluster, I'm talking about things that are a thousand to a million times less massive than the Milky Way. Yeah. They're still massive. That These things still might be a million solar masses, and that's that much less than the Milky Way sort yeah. of thing. Um, so what happens is as these stars get pulled off as it orbits around, they're stuck still on the same orbit of the dwarf galaxy or the globular cluster as it's going around the Milky Way. And so they end up going in front of it and behind that core, and so you end up with this streak of stars. Right. Um, so that's what they are. They're, they're interesting for a number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, so, so stellar streams where they can tell us about where they came from. Did they form with the Milky Way? Were they brought in by an earlier interaction? But when I was working on them, uh, one of the things that I was interested in is what does the dark matter halo look like? So... Yeah. Uh, if you're, so imagine now you're in a locked room with an invisible animal. Could be an elephant, could be a moose, could be a lemur. You don't know what it is. It's an invisible animal. And I ask you, how are you going to tell me what type of animal that is? What would you do? Well, 
if the animal doesn't bite, I'm going to go touch it. And based on what I feel, I will tell you what it is. Yep. So so that's a great idea. Uh, I think it's a fantastic idea. Given that the animal is not a predator because I don't want to die. Yeah. But let's go say that you can't touch it. Is there another way? Um... I would make noise, and then based on the noise that it sort of replies back with, I would so, know. So that, that's a way. There, the way that I was thinking of is you spray it with water. You, okay. you just keep pouring water on it, and so that you get to see the outline. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, now with the dark matter, we can't see dark matter. That's why it's called dark matter. Yeah. Um, so what nature has done is it has sprayed the dark matter halo with water in the form of stellar streams. Now, it's a complicated thing, but the stellar streams are out far enough that it's the dark matter halo that tells us, that dominates the gravity that they experience. It dominates what they're feeling. Yeah. And so you can do uh, simulation, different styles of simulations uh, what, to see... Uh, how you could form an observation. So it's a little bit complicated uh, because we see this elongated structure on the sky. We can measure its position. Distances are hard in astronomy. Um, Velocities, not so hard as it turns out. (laughs) Uh, So weird thing about astronomy. Wonderful thing, weird thing. Um, What we can do is we can try to go and see, well, what if I, let me try this halo. Let me try this different halo. So again, with our invisible animal, we've got this, these streaks of water flowing off of it, but we don't necessarily have enough to perfectly see. Yeah. And so we go, well, what would happen if I did a simulation where I poured water on an elephant shape? Does that look like what we see? What if I poured water on a lemur shape? Does that look like what we see? What if I poured water on a moose shape? So with this is we try different models of the dark matter halo. We can make it a bit bigger, a bit smaller, a bit more massive, a bit less massive. But we do have constraints. We can't do... There are other observations beyond just stellar streams that you have to consider. Yeah, yeah. You, you but, At the end of the day, you do want to end up with something that looks like the Milky yeah. Way and not... Yeah. And uh, then you go, and so you go, I have this, and I'm going to do a simulation. I'm going to make a mock stellar stream inside this model. And you take a look and go, did it look like the real thing? Yes or no? Um, And if the answer is no, then you go and try another one, and you try another one, and you keep doing that until you get something that reasonably resembles the stellar stream that you're trying to model. Okay, great. Um, let's let's move on to sort of the big picture questions with respect to stellar streams over here. You told us how the stellar streams actually um, get created and how they interact with the dark matter halo. How do they sort of co-evolve, if I can put use that word, or help evolve ev- the evolution of the Milky Way itself? So are, the, are the stars from the stellar stream becoming a part of the disk uh, of the Milky Way, so the place where the spiral arm lives? And things like that. So, in fact, it's not going. They t- the stars typically don't fall onto the disc. Right. They're left in. Uh, so, one of the components that I didn't mention. Yeah. There's the dark matter halo and there's the stellar halo. 
And where these uh, stellar streams eventually do, they populate this stellar halo. And eventually the streams dissipate and they're going to be hard to see. Yeah. Um, now, there are people who do some complicated things by where they do uh, what are called action angle variables. These okay. are weird and I try to avoid them, but they turn out to be very useful. What you might be aware of uh, is things like the conservation of momentum and conservation of energy. You can't create or destroy it, and that that's capped. Yeah, for conservation of momentum for for our listeners, just think of an ice skater. When the ice skater has their hands out and they're rotating, they're rotating uh, at a certain speed, and as the hands start coming in, they start to go faster. That's essentially conservation of momentum. Um, sorry, Nathan, go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, that's exactly right. And uh, again, conservation of energy is saying, you know, if you're going at some speed and you have some kinetic energy, you can move it into potential energy, so gravitational energy. Uh, another way of thinking about it is, let's say you're driving on the highway, your position's constantly changing, but you're moving along, and so uh, your velocity is constant and that's yeah. your velocity times your mat your momentum is constant and if you want to slow down you have to convert your kinetic energy and you have to get rid of it through friction by braking yeah. uh and it usually makes some noise burn some rubber if you're doing it too fast or you run into something that really bad things happen because you're on the highway <laughs> point is is that it's conserved unless there's some craziness happening so what people are doing is when they're studying the uh, halo, the, the stellar halo, they're looking for stars that have the same similar ages, similar chemistries, because chemistry, once your star is formed, your chemistry is kind of fixed yeah. sort of thing, other than what happens to your star as it grows uh, and, and ages and, and converts yeah. you know, hydrogen into helium and all that good stuff and then hopefully blows up. Yeah. Because supernovas are fun. Yeah. Uh, but that's conserved. And then you can also look for things that have similar momenta and similar energies. And that's mm. what are these action angle variables. So you're not looking for stuff that are at the same position right. or velocity. You're looking for the same total energy and same total momentum right. uh, and same chemistry. And when you sort of evolve those backwards, you can often see that those came from the same object. Okay. Sort of thing. Yeah. And you can trace back how that thing fo- fell into the Milky Way. And the this thing is, of is, course, Nathan's simulations, right? Because you yeah. cannot possibly do this with telescopes yet. No, because that, when I say that you're going backwards in time. Right. So, yes, the observations, you can tag things in your telescopes now, where yeah. they are now. But to go backwards in time, you need to do that in a computer. Right. Sort of thing, exactly. in a simulation. Yeah. Um. Why this is important is that with galaxies, the way that galaxies grow and gain mass is by stuff falling onto it, usually small things. Uh, That's the dominant way that we think galaxies grow with time. And so by figuring out all these different things, by tracing out these stellar streams, these remnants, we're seeing the buildup of the Milky Way and so people in the field will often talk about galactic archaeology, probably because they wa- watched a lot of Indiana Jones as a kid, yeah. but uh, galactic archaeology in how you're actually piecing together the formation of the Milky Way 
yeah. by where the stellar streams are, how old they are, and when did they have to come in to get to be have the structure that they have now. Yeah, okay. All right. So we're reaching towards the end of this second segment here, Nathan. Um, and maybe let's let's go to the big picture here, looking towards the future right now. So we've talked a lot about the the stellar streams and how it tells us about how the Milky Way evolved and how, what kind of things it interacted with. So given this idea and given your expertise here, what are some of the developments that are happening in the field or that are soon to come um, right now? are you most excited about? They can be both simulations and observations of galaxies. Yeah. So I've, I've talked a lot about stellar streams and we haven't, uh, I, I should mention, I do a lot of work with numerical simulations that don't involve stellar streams. Right. So yeah. that, that's all very interesting stuff. In stellar streams, the big thing is still uh, Gaia observations. Okay. Now I'm not really involved with that now. There are people at Queens that are. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, on the archive today, I don't know if you've ever talked about archive with your listeners. No, we have not. But, so let me just open up uh, some of the yeah. things over here. Gaia is essentially a telescope that was launched in the late 2000, 2000s, and it has been up there for about, what would you say, five to seven years now? That sounds about right. I think yeah. it's what, and, data release two, data release three? Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah, as I said, I'm not using it a lot. But it's super cool in what yeah, it's so, doing. Yeah, it, uh, it is trying to measure the positions of about a billion stars within our Milky Way. Just as a reference, previously we knew about a few thousand of them, a few hundred thousand at the max in the later, older generations of this telescope. So Guy is trying to sort of blow the current number out of the water. And some of the results coming out are really interesting about with, with respect to how the Milky Way evolved observationally. Yeah. And so uh, in astronomy, we write papers uh, and publish them. And that's how we circulate knowledge. Uh, I, I mean, maybe in the future, we'll, it'll be instead of papers, it'll be podcasts. <laughs> but uh, right now, that's how we do it. Uh, it is the dominant way. And on when we publish a paper, we'll often put up a copy that's free and available to everyone on a place called the archive. Yeah. Um, there is a paper up today in which one of the uh, professors at Queens, my old supervisor, when I was doing my mm. PhD, uh, Larry Woodrow is an author on talking about uh, what a particular collision uh, with, uh, of a, object that formed a disturbance with the Milky Way some billion years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, and this was done using simulations uh, and uh, also observations and doing something with uh, called the Milky Way at home where they're doing distributed simulations of the Milky Way, which is also yeah. really cool. It's something that anyone can actually sign up to do. Uh, this Milky Way at home type thing, where when your computer goes to sleep, it, it goes and will use some cycles to help out people just studying the Milky Way. The Milky Way, yeah. Uh, that's the Milky Way at home sort of thing. Yeah. From the stuff like CD at home and the sort of idea. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, are there any things in, within the field of simulations that you're looking forward to? Yeah, so in the simulations, um, of course, there's always... 
there's always new and better simulations right. uh, sort of things Sim- simulate because we get more computer power uh, and we get new tools uh, and we're able to go down to we're able to look at bigger things with better resolution in simulation space. Uh, simulation space is a magical space where uh, you're allowed to look at different effects, but there's a lot of approximations that happen, uh, yeah. particularly in uh, end-body simulations, which is an area that I work on. Um, one of the questions that people have about the Milky Way that there's been a lot of research on and there's different camps is how did the bulge of the Milky Way form uh, sort of thing. So you've got this ball of stars. You yeah, can form right that at right at the center. Yeah. Uh, and it's a pretty significant chunk of the Milky Way. Uh, again, relatively speaking, you could form that sort of when the first version of the Milky Way forms. So it's that's called a classical thing. That's been there, always been there sort of thing. Yeah. There's another th- a mechanism for forming a bulge, which is uh, called a pseudo-bulge, which is it forms out of the disk spinning. So as you grow a bar, you're mo- you end up moving stuff into the center of your galaxy and form a bulge. And when we look at other galaxies, we can sometimes distinguish between whether something has a classical bulge or a pseudo-bulge. In the Milky Way, there's, it, it's not clear. This is one of those things where because we're stuck inside, it's actually harder to measure than it is sometimes in other galaxies. Yeah. And so some work that I'm involved in is doing some isolated simulations of the Milky Way. So treating the Milky Way as though it's itself and, and nothing's falling on it. And looking at if I do a simulation with a bulge in the center initially or doing a simulation without a bulge and letting it form one. Are there signatures in there that would let us distinguish between the two scenarios? Could we tell the difference from what we see of the bulge that would let us confirm, is it a classical bulge or is it a pseudo-bulge? And that, again, it tells us about how our galaxy formed, how we came to be. Yeah, cool. Okay, Um, so I think this is a great place to stop um, for a break. Um, When we come back, we're going to talk about Nathan's current job uh, at the Canadian Institute for Radio Astronomy. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Connor again. While we are really proud of our content at the Queen's Observatory, we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the other great resources out there. The Macdonald Institute, the Royal Astronomical Society, and the Astronomy on Tap programs are all very enthusiastic about bringing the universe down to Earth. Links to these online programs will be available in the podcast description. And with that, let's get back to this fascinating discussion. And welcome back. Um, I'm still here with Nathan over here. And now we're going to talk about Nathan essentially the part of your current job, which is being a software developer for the Canadian Institute for Radio Astronomy. Um, This institute is essentially a new institute as far as I know in Canada, and it is established here in Canada because we're awaiting the start of this really good telescope, a radio telescope called the Square Kilometer Array. So Nathan, let's, let's just walk through sort of some of the basics of SKA or Square Kilometer Array. What is SKA? So, SKA, 
is, as you said, the square kilometer array. It's meant to be an array of radio telescopes. So uh, when we think about it, a lot lot of times when you picture astronomy, you picture those beautiful optical telescopes. Yeah. But radio is also light, and it's uh, very common. Uh, It's where gas emits light from, generally. And we see it in the radio. Sorry. Uh, We see... We detect gas, we detect all sorts of different things through radio emission. Not just gas, but there's a lot of stuff in the radio wavelengths. So for those, we need a a mirror, a polished mirror, like uh, at the telescopes on Mauna Kea, which, Nick, I know you've uh, been to and visited and seen how gorgeous those are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mauna Kea, by the way, is in Hawaii, on the big island of Hawaii. Yes. Those sorts of telescopes won't detect radio obs- radio waves. You need radio telescopes. Now, you can build one giant dish um, for them, uh, and people have done it. So, uh, famously, there's the Arecibo Telescope, which yeah. uh, a couple years ago, uh, after something like 50 years of work, gave out and collapsed. Yeah. Uh, China has built one that is... Uh, 500 meters across, called FAST. Yeah. So half a kilometer across is the diameter of that radio dish. Right. Um, so it's got a lot of area, but there's it's hard to build these giant dishes. And when you build a giant dish, you really can't move it around. However, radio has this uh, cool property that you can combine the observations from multiple radio dishes. And so we call that an array uh, sort of thing. So the idea of the square kilometer array, it was initially to build a one array of telescopes that when you add the area of all the dishes together, it's a square kilometer. But it would those dishes would be spread across hundreds of kilometers in a pattern. Because the right. farther apart you spread your array the higher resolution that you can get, which is sort of the genesis of stuff called very long baseline interferometry, which is a different topic. The only reason why I mention it is there's a famous image of uh, the black hole, uh, M87, the central supermassive black hole. And that was done by having an array spread across the entire planet. Yeah. Now, that was the initial idea of the square kilometer array. It has been redesigned in multiple ways it's actually going to be uh on two different continents with two different arrays studying different frequencies so the part of the square kilometer array is going to be built in australia and another part is going to be built in uh south africa mainly in south africa but extending into other neighboring uh countries right uh and it's those two are going to study slightly different wavelengths uh, but as a where where Serata comes into this is that when the SKA is built, it's going to the amount of data that it gets per night equals roughly the internet now sort of thing. <laughs> it, it's an insane volume of data, right? And then it's a lot of that gets analyzed and combined into sort of the observational products that we need. But even those are going to be crazily huge. Yeah. Um, and so institutes like Serata are starting to gear up for the SKA 
and the data challenges it's going to come at with it so that people in different countries can easily access uh, what are going to be called square kilometer array regional centers. Yeah. And Serata is, it's a standalone thing right now, but it is intended, or there is a hope that we can eventually evolve Serata into a square kilometer array regional center in Canada. Right. uh, Sort of thing. Okay. Uh, And that's going to enable people to do science with insane volumes of data. Cool. Um, yeah, we'll we'll talk about. I guess you you answered one of the questions I had for you for later on. Essentially, what is the Canadian Institute for Radio Astronomy? Um, we'll talk about it a little bit in in a minute. But let's let's go back to the SKA again and and sort of Nathan. Can you tell our listeners about what does the radio observations or radio telescopes tell us about the universe specifically? It tells us oh oh so much. <laughs> so the the thing is is that radio covers a huge band sort of thing uh, of uh, different wavelengths of observations and there's a lot of different science that people yeah. can do with it. Um, I'm interested, for instance, in gas and the majority of gas in galaxies is uh, lives in H1 which is it's hydrogen with a particular ionization. That's why it's called H1. It emits light at a very specific wavelength, 21 centimeters. Yeah. And uh, so we can see that in radio. That's a radio wavelength. So that radio is key for, if you want to do any science about gas, radio is key for that. Absolutely. At least particularly H1 gas, which is, again... The dominant type of gas. It's not all the gas. The, it, it does come in different flavors and this sort of thing, but it's a, a, a big portion. If you're interested in magnetic fields, radio gives you that. So, so right. it lets you do science about magnetism, which there is a standard joke about in astronomy, which is whenever you we don't know the answer to a problem, we just say it's magnets. It's magnets. It's because it's complicated and it's hard to measure. Right. And SKA is going to revolutionize that field. Yeah. If you're interested in things like black holes, radio is the key way that we see black holes because it uh, though particles that come near any gas that comes near a black hole gets accelerated to insanely fast speeds. We're talking insane. 90 plus percent speed of light sort of thing like it gets accelerated very to crazy high speeds and emits uh light uh in the radio well eventually in the radio through synchrotron emission which is a fancy name for complicated emission that's not uh from the heat it's a different mechanism for getting light out yeah so you've got black holes the square kilometer array is going to be involved with things uh like even SETI, search for uh, life on other planets, search yeah. for intelligent life, all of that. So it gets in the square kilometer array science touches every aspect of astronomy from our solar system to the formation of the universe. It lets us study things like the cosmic microwave ba- background and this sort of stuff. So that's leftover radiation from the Big Bang. Mm. So from here... At every scale, it's tell- the radio is telling us and contributing. Uh, mm. So it, it, it's sort of, what are the missions of the SKA? It's one of those, 
everything, <laughs> uh, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. It, it, it's a great thing because it can tell us about everything. It's a bad thing because it means that you've built it's very complicated and a lot has to go into it. And a lot of time has been spent designing and building it and testing things. It's, uh, I should say it's already under construction is started on this, uh, now. Um, but even before the SKA was built, there's been pathfinders for this built. Uh, there's a number of pathfinders. What the, the two ones that I'm most involved with, in various spots are Meerkat, which is in South Africa, where, mm-hmm. and uh, ASCAP, which is the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder, which is in Australia. Yeah. And these two uh, are different telescopes. They're pathfinders. They're test beds for the Square Kilometer Array. And yes. they're currently the two best radio arrays on the planet. Yeah. So, sort of okay. thing. Uh, cool. So that's how impressive the sort of development is. In the course of developing to get to building the most advanced thing, we already built the most advanced what? things that are going to be a fraction of the full square kilometer array. Yeah, listening to this is definitely very exciting. Um, SKA is certainly going to be revolutionary in, in what it tells us about the universe. Almost certainly, it comes in almost at the right time with James Webb going up right now and taking the next five odd months to sort of start to take data which is also going to tell us about a lot about the universe. For yeah. I think we're going to plan a big episode, a science episode for our listeners for the SKA, but we've already done something about the James Webb as well. So go back and listen to it. If you were in- interested about what Nathan mentioned with respect to Arecibo a little while ago, we also have a tribute to Arecibo as well, which we did last Christmas. Um, and if you're interested, please go have a listen to it as well. So Nathan, let's continue with the SKA um, <clears throat> uh, theme over here. So you work on something called Wallaby um, yes. currently. Um, so tell us what Wallaby is and how does it connect to SKA? Yeah. So Wallaby is a survey uh, and astronomers really love acronyms and doing terrible things to make an acronym that kind of works. And so Wallaby stands for Wild Wide Field ASCAP L-Band Legacy All-Sky Blind Survey. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, ASCAP is a telescope. It's on the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder. Right. L-Band, it's so in radio, I said there's all sorts of wavelengths. L-Band is a specific set of wavelengths. Right. Um, it's... And wide field is uh, one of the strengths of the ASCAP telescope is that it for radio uh, observations, it has a particularly wide field of view. And what its goal is to do an all sky, well, all sky that you can see from Australia yeah. and surveyed in radio. And this is something that's not done particularly often because in astronomy we don't typically have instruments with a wide enough field to cover the entire sky rapidly yeah um now there it hasn't been done sometimes in optical there is a specific telescope being built in optical uh i I think it's the vera rubin observatory yes it's one of those it used to be called the lsst it's now the vera rubin It it, it got a much better name, a well-deserved name. Yes. um, That's going to do this in optical 
But in radio, there really doesn't exist an all-sky, and particularly L-band. The L-band, I said earlier that gas has a specific 21-centimeter emission. That's in the L-band for the nearby universe. Uh, With very... in astronomy, the nearby universe is also a nebulous definition oh, yes. sort of thing. The, yeah. it, we're terrible. It's nearby, by which we mean it's only, you know, X billion sort of way. Yeah. Uh, units away. But this survey is designed to find H1 gas around the entire sky. To, so this will be... Uh, and to do it blindly, so typically... If you can't do a full sky, you stare at spots where you know there's going to be something in radio sort of thing. So you'll use optical to guide where you're going to look. This time, we're not we're not guiding it anywhere. We're just looking at everything yeah. and trying to get all the H1 uh, that we can. Um, now, where this be- comes up is when we talk about H1 emission and H1 galaxies... The total number of things known in the nearby universe is relatively low, sort of thing. And this is going to increase it by an order of magnitude, something on the order of half, 500,000 million order. I can never remember the precise number that they have, that they're expecting. Right. Where I come into this is when we talk about H1 galaxies, a lot of things are what we would call a point source, that we know it's there. But all the gas is stuck inside a pixel sort of thing, mm. or a beam. It's a, Radio astronomy is weird. We have beams, the, the, there's pixels, and it's in velocity because there's cubes. It, it's complicated. Key thing is that a point source is stuck to, it's a point. Wallaby is going to get resolved galaxies. Right. Uh, and so the number of resolved H1 galaxies that we have yeah. is on the order of a thousand-ish sort yeah. of thing right now. Wallaby is that, going that, to get us on the order of 30,000. Yeah, and that's just because for... Re- magnitudes more. Yeah, that, and that's just because with respect to H1 and having multiple pixels for one galaxy takes a very long time. It yeah. can take hours to get that data yeah. and but, wallaby is trying to get it for the first time for a lot of galaxies yeah and this is because ASCAP is both far more sensitive than previous right. telescopes and has this wide field of view so it can cover a lot of the sky quickly yeah okay um, perfect um yeah nathan we're reaching towards the end of our time with you um and maybe this one last question that i have which um our listeners certainly appreciate for all our scientists is what is one advice you could give your past self as a scientist before you were starting out research? Ah, that's a good question. The The biggest one is never get discouraged sort of thing. Yeah. In the sense, a lot of stuff is going to fail, mm. but it's going to fail in an interesting way. Um, I have a story of Galaxies that blew up for six months of my master's. My <laughs> galaxies kept exploding in my simulations. And we learned stuff from that. Yeah. Uh, we, and you constantly learn things even from your failures. And being a successful scientist, it's not necessarily about how smart you are or anything like that. It's about you just be persistent and you keep working at it sort right. of thing. I stand by anybody can be a scientist. 
everybody is a scientist in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, it's just a way of learning about the world hmm. uh, and learning about the universe and our place in it. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's a methodology. And so it's not about how smart you are. It's just about you keep working at it. Yeah. Uh, bit by bit. And the most successful scientists are the ones who just kept working. Oh, that's a very good advice, Nathan. Um, thank you uh, for coming along today and sort of talking us through the Milky Way and some of the bigger revolutions coming in the field of radio astronomy, for sure. Um, I think that was a good place to end. Thank you once again, Nathan, for coming. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. And I hope you're all having a fantastic start to the year. Yeah, uh, that I echo that as well from Nathan. Um, this is all from us here at the Fast Radio Burst, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter as the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.